Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series for 2018-2019. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Um, let me just plunge in, um, if that's okay. And I gave you a variety of sources, um, very oddly mixed. Um, but I want to start in the middle of them, um, which is a page that will says on the top on Judaism. And it comes from a lecture that Martin Buber gave in 1909 to a group of students that uh, was called the Bar Kokhba group. It's kind of looking forward to Hillel at a, a university in Prague. Um, and Buber was known as somebody who had been active in the Zionist movement. One thing to bear in mind is the Zionist movement at that time, although I mean, this is after Herzl had already died, it was certainly committed to trying to found a Jewish homeland in Palestine, but it was also committed to trying to reinvigorate Jewish culture generally, especially among Jews who were, well, not orthodox, shall we say, who uh, you know, be, be, were not orthodox and not necessarily reform either. They were secular and interested, maybe very much associated with the kind of people who come to Valley Bay Midrash, but, um, but, you, but they were quite alienated from the tradition. There wasn't anything like this in Prague in, uh, in, the, in the early 1900s. And Buber comes in, he hasn't written any philosophy at this point, he has started to write about Hasidism, um, and he gives a lecture on Judaism, he gives three lectures actually, and this, this is from the first of them, um, in which he's trying to show them the excitement, the inner power of the Jewish tradition. And his hope basically, is that that power can be reawoken. So here's how the, how the lecture ends. Um, let's, I, I will read aloud the last couple paragraphs. The self-affirmation of the Jew has its tragic aspects as well as its grandeur. For as I've already said, along with our self-affirmation, we become aware of all the degrada degradation from which we must liberate our future generations. But we must also perceive that there still dwell within us things that have not as yet been brought out, that there are still present within us forces awaiting their day. And to live as a Jew means to absorb this tragic aspect as well as the grandeur of self-affirmation. And one of the things he's doing is affirming the fact that for many of these students, the Orthodox tradition, Judaism, was kind of dead. It seemed superstitious and old and so forth. And on the other hand, Reform Judaism was far too rationalist for them. It's like a religion of reason that doesn't seem to have any connection to the sources. They're not interested in that. So he's admitting that there's a kind of degradation, but he says there's still this possibility of self-affirmation. There are forces that can be brought to life. 
And for him, the great periods of Judaism were the prophetic period, Hasidic period, and also actually the early uh, Jesus movement. Later on, he stops referring to Jesus as, as a great Jewish figure. But at that point, that's one of the points at which the tradition had brought itself to life, and he's suggesting that can happen again today. What matters for the Jew is not his credo, nor his declared adherence to an idea or a movement, but that he absorb his own truth, that he live it, that he purify himself from the dross of foreign rule, and that he find his way from division to unity. It's a big theme of him, of his, that Judaism is about unifying yourself, among other things. You, we worship a unified God to try to bring ourselves together. When I was a child, and this is the end of the lecture, you can imagine it too, a group of students who are hungering for something that would make Judaism more exciting. When I was a child, I read an old Jewish tale I could not understand. It said no more than this. Outside the gates of Rome, there sits a leprous beggar waiting. He is the Messiah. Then I came upon an old man whom I asked, what's he waiting for? And the old man gave me an answer I did not understand at the time, an answer I learned to understand only much later. He said, he waits for you. Okay, now this is a retelling of a famous story in the Talmud that we're going to turn to in a minute. And not to give the game away too much, but part of what excited me when I first read this is it looked to me very much like a very famous story by Franz Kafka, which we will turn to in a little bit. And as it turns out, Kafka was one of the students who came to Buber's lectures in Prague. He may not have been at this particular one. He was at the other two. He probably heard about this one, though. I don't think it's an accident that there's an affinity between these things. We'll hold that off, and we'll turn to the Kafka in a minute. Let's first look at the source of the story. Um, and Buber always retells stories. When he's retelling Hasidic stories, too, it's always in his own voice, and it fits with uh, his own, I would say, expressionist way of writing at that time. He, he loves folk tales, um, but these are not real folk tales. They are retold in a very informal uh, voice. They sound almost childlike, very simple, but they're deceptively simple, I think. There's something quite artful about the simplicity as well. Um, but in any case, the story he's retelling is on the back of that sheet from Sanhedrin 98A. And I recently saw Rav Shmuley allude to this story, actually, on, on Facebook. So I know it's uh, close to his heart, um, though I don't know exactly what he thinks about him. <laughs> so Rabbi Hoshua ben Levi said to uh, Elijah, and this is has got the, the, the actual Aramaic is very hard to follow, and it's got the rest of it filled in. I'm just going to read the translation. Um, when will the Messiah come? Elijah said to him, go ask him. He responded, and where is he sitting? Elijah said, at the entrance of Rome, the gates of Rome. Rabbi Yehoshua ben Levi asked him, and what is his identifying sign? How will I know who he is? Elijah said, he sits among the poor who suffer from illnesses, from leprosy, probably, and all of them untie their bandages and tie them all at once. They take them all off, and then they put on new ones. But the Messiah unties one bandage and ties one at a time. He doesn't do them all. He does each one separately. He says, perhaps I'll be needed to help bring the redemption. Therefore, I'll never tie more than one bandage so that I will not be delayed. So if it happens between bandages, he's suddenly called, he can go. Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi went to the Messiah. He said to him, Shalom Aleichem, my rabbi and my teacher. The Messiah said to him, 
Shalom Aleichem Bar Levai. I don't know why it's a slightly different version of his last name, but so. Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi said to him, when will the master come? When is the Messiah coming? The Messiah said to him, today. Sometime later, Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi came to Elijah. Elijah said to him, what did the Messiah say to you? He said to Elijah, the Messiah said, peace be upon you, Shalom Aleichem, Bar Levai. Elijah said to him, he thereby guaranteed that you and your father will enter the world to come. Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi said to Elijah, the Messiah lied to me. He said to me, I'm coming today, and he didn't come. Elijah said to him, this is what he said to you. He said that he will come today if you will listen to his voice. Now, this is from a psalm that we say in the beginning of Shabbat every week. Hayom im tishmal. Today, if you will listen to his voice. So any today, at any moment, he could come. But he'll never come unless you listen to his voice. Let me uh, provide a little context for this, the last page of the packet, uh, and then ask you what you see as similarities and differences between this story and Buber's retelling of it. So the story comes from a very long section <coughs> of Tractate Sanhedrin in the Talmud, which deals with the coming of the Messiah and the will to come. It's uncommon for the Talmud to have so many stories, and, include, and this includes some of the most famous stories in the Talmud, just one after another, um, and sort of pulling back to get a really wide-angle view. What's Sanhedrin about? Well, it's about courts. It begins with a chapter on uh, the size of courts, different sizes for monetary issues versus capital issues. Obviously, those are more serious. You want to distinguish between the two. Then there's a chapter on whether the king can be tried, whether the high priest can be tried, whether they can participate in trials, um, how you investigate witnesses on a monetary matter, how you investigate witnesses on a capital matter. And then there's chapter after chapter on capital punishment because when you have a capital matter, after you finish the trial, if the guy's guilty, you got to execute him. And that's fairly gruesome reading, stoning and this strangulation and who gets killed and who's subject to capital punishment. And there's some nice bits, too, about how if in the last minute there's evidence to reprieve someone, you do reprieve them. And then after all this stuff on capital punishment, suddenly there's a chapter on the world to come. It's as if, okay, now everybody's dead. Let's think about what happens next, right? And that begins famously. I think it was meant to be the last chapter. There's actually another chapter. I think it's misedited, but I'm not a scholar. I'm not a historical scholar. Uh, this is just my guess looking at the literary structure. In any case, um, Perakhelik, the 10th chapter, from which I'm, there's a lot of stories in it, and there's a lot of um, philosophical speculation in it. It begins famously with, all Israel has a place in the world to come. And then it goes into, who doesn't have a place in the world to come? Um, uh, those people who don't believe in a world to come, they don't have a place in the world to come. That's one of the groups. Uh, other people who deny basic principles of the Torah, they don't have a place in the world to come. So then there's a question about the world to come and whether you, what kind of heretic is excluded. And you can ask, does this mean that the heretics are not really people of Israel? 
is the Mishnah con contradicting itself? Those are all interesting questions that we're not getting into. The point is that this mention of the world to come gives the Talmud an excuse to go into speculations about what happens after our own individual lives and especially what might happen at the end of time. Okay, so that's probably the excuse for these reams and reams of messianic stories. So just to give you a bit of a sample from pages and pages and pages, on, uh, uh, you have, it's a, a rather important one as we'll see, right at the top of this last page, uh, Rabbi Shmuel Bar Nachmani, in the name of Rabbi Yonatan says, may those who calculate the end of days be cursed. Um, as they would say, once the end of days that they calculated arrived and the Mashiach didn't come, Messiah didn't come, that he won't come any, at all. And this comes after various speculations about what time the Messiah is coming. And he's saying, don't calculate this. Because if you calculate it, then your time comes, and then you give up. Right? Uh, better not to have an end-of-day scenario at all. Rather, the proper behavior is to continue to wait for his coming, as it is said, though it tarry, wait for it. And famously, when... Um, Maimonides comes to formulate the principle of faith about the coming of the Messiah. He says, I have faith, I firmly believe, I firmly believe that the Messiah will come, and though he tarry, I will wait for him. And they, we have a, made that into a song, and even though he tarry, that, that's a big part of the song. Um, so this bit of the Talmud has an important afterlife, right? Um, it's a famous story for us. You don't calculate, you just wait. And then further down, there's a discussion, and I only gave you a little bit of it, but it goes on quite a bit, between Rav and Shmuel, which then echoes an earlier discussion about whether there's a set time for the Messiah to come or whether the Jewish people have to repent. That is, will the Mashiach come even if we don't repent, even if we don't improve anything, if we don't do any tikkun olam, or do we have to improve the world before the Messiah will come. And that's a debate. It's more or less left open, although I think the set view is God will bring the Messiah whether we repent or not. But there's some encouragement to repent. And of course, that connects to our story. The story appears at the end of this. Uh, you look at the, towards the bottom of the page, the various suggestions here that the Messiah will come either when all human beings are bad or when they're all good. Um, I think that's often a way to think about progressive change also, reform movements. Um, if your country doesn't improve its politics, then things are going to get worse and worse and worse, and then they'll have to improve by way of a revolution because things will be so bad. But the better thing to do would be to improve them to, to start off with. So if, let's just say, remotely, we, our country were to face the destruction of its constitution and greater and greater threats of fascism, one thing to do is to undo those threats and bring the country to a real nice, vibrant liberal democracy. The other is to let it deteriorate until we actually just about hit dictatorship and then we can all have a revolution. Uh, so in some ways, that's what the Talmud is saying. Either everything is going to become a complete disaster, then the Messiah will come, or we'll improve things and then the Messiah will come. Anyway. Um, at the end of the page, we have <coughs> Rabbi, Rabbi Alexandri saying, in the name of Rabbi Yehoshua ben Levi, 
there's a contradiction between whether God will bring the Messiah early or not, and he then resolves it by saying, if we improve things, God will bring the Messiah earlier. So we'll get the Messiah in any case, but if we actually work on things, then it, then it'll get better. And then at the end of that, we have the story that we just read. Again, Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi being, asking, when's the Messiah going to come? Elijah the prophet, who traditionally in the Talmud moves back and forth between God and human beings, saying, well, why don't you ask him himself? He's there, which is to say the Messiah is actually here now. He's just sitting outside the gates of Rome, taking bandages on, putting them off and putting them on again. Ask him when he'll come, and he says, today. Today, if you will listen to God's word, right? So that's the source for Buber's story at the end of his lecture to these young Jewish intellectuals in Prague. How similar do you think they are? To what extent does he seem to be retelling the Talmudic story, do you think? Or do you think the context makes it completely different, or his way of telling it is, is different? What, what do you think? I think it's internalizing. It's, it's more about from within, like, be the change you want to see in the world. Okay, so that's nice. Instead of saying, this is what happened to Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi, he's saying, this happened to me. I, he's waiting for me. And he's waiting for all of you in the audience as well, right? You don't think that's implicit in the um, Talmudic story? To some extent, yeah. But he's making it explicit, yeah. I mean, there's one sense in which, quite obviously, he's doing something different. The Talmud is saying, repent. And I think we can be fairly confident that what they mean by repent is start keeping the mitzvot, you know, keep Shabbat be stricter about kashrut, etc. That's not what Buber's saying at all. He's not at all interested in that. He means reread your sources, read the Hasidic stories, read the prophets, be inspired, find the self-affirmation and release it in those texts. Not at all clear what that means. He isn't talking about returning to some old practice. He's talking, talking about reviving something, giving something life that in our tradition that may seem not to have life. Recognize that the life is already there, but it takes us to bring it out. So it's an interesting appropriation, reuse of that Talmudic text. I can just move on, but if you had anything else you were thinking about with the connection between the two stories, you can also think about them as we move to Kafka. All right, you think about it more, and then let's move to Kafka. And I'm going to guess that many of you have read this story before, but it's worth rereading it, and in any case, it's so wonderful, I can't resist rereading it. Um, it's pay, uh, at the top, it just says introduction, because I took the story from a um, collection of Kafka stories. The story appears in Kafka's novel, The Trial, but it was originally written as a separate story um, in 1914, so just five years after the Buber. Um, he incorporated it into the trial, which also changes its meaning. And then, in fact, in the trial, after the story, there is a long 20-page discussion of the meaning of the story between the characters in, in the novel. But we're not going to worry about that. 
So here it is. Before the law stands a doorkeeper on guard. To this doorkeeper there comes a man from the country who begs for admittance to the law. But the doorkeeper says that he can't admit the man at the moment. The man, on reflection, asks if he will be allowed then to enter later. It's possible, answers the doorkeeper, but not at this moment. Since the door leading into the law stands open as usual and the doorkeeper steps to one side, the man bends down to peer through the entrance. When the doorkeeper sees that, he laughs and says, if you're so strongly tempted, try to get in without my permission. But note that I am powerful, and I'm only the lowest doorkeeper. From hall to hall, keepers stand at every door, one more powerful than the other. Even the third of these has an aspect that even I cannot bear to look at. These are difficulties which the man from the country has not expected to meet. The law, he thinks, should be accessible to every man and at all times. But when he looks more closely at the doorkeeper in his furred robe with his huge pointed nose and long, thin tartar beard, he decides that he had better wait to, until he gets permission to enter. The doorkeeper gives him a stool and lets him sit down at the side of the door. There he sits waiting for days and years. He makes many attempts to be allowed in and wearies the doorkeeper with his importunity. The doorkeeper often engages him in brief conversation, asking him about his home and about other matters, but the questions are put quite impersonally as great men put questions and always conclude with the statement that the man cannot be allowed to enter yet. The man who has equipped himself with many things for his journey parts with all he has, however valuable, in the hope of bribing the doorkeeper. The doorkeeper accepts it all, saying, however, as he takes each gift, I take this only to keep you from feeling that you have left something undone. During all these long years, the man watches the doorkeeper almost incessantly. He forgets about the other doorkeepers, and this one seems to him the only barrier between himself and the law. In the first years, he curses his evil fate aloud. Later, as he grows old, he only mutters to himself. He grows childish, and since in his prolonged watch he has learned to know even the fleas in the doorkeeper's fur collar, he begs the very fleas to help him and to persuade the doorkeeper to change his mind. Finally, his eyes grow dim, and he does not know whether the world is really darkening around him or whether his eyes are only deceiving him. But in the darkness, he can now perceive a radiance that streams immortally from the door of the law. Now his life is drawing to a close. Before he dies, all that he has experienced during the whole time of his sojourn condenses in his mind into one question which he has never yet put to the doorkeeper. He beckons the doorkeeper since he can no longer raise his stiffening body. The doorkeeper has to bend far down to hear him for the difference in size between them has increased very much to the man's disadvantage. What do you want to know now, asks the doorkeeper. You are insatiable. Everyone strives to attain the law, answers the man. How does it come about then that in all these years no one has come seeking admittance but me? The doorkeeper perceives that the man is at the end of his strength and that his hearing is failing, so he bellows in his ear, no one but you could gain admittance through this door since this door was intended only for you. I am now going to shut it. So what do you think? Does that sound like Buber's story? He waits for you. The door is for you. Should the man have gone in?
Did he make a mistake? Is it just simple stupidity or cowardice? It's always hard to answer these kinds of questions with Kafka. It's never clear what he's talking about. It's also, what kind of law is he talking about? I mean, one obvious possibility which I'm suggesting is that this is the Torah. Um, in a Jewish context, that makes sense. Some people think it isn't supposed to be the Torah, but what other kind of law would you be seeking admittance to, whatever exactly that means? Kafka later, I think, took Jewish classes at a kind of adult education center. I think he and his then-girlfriend went, and he studied the um, Agadita, the stories of the Talmud, while his girlfriend went to the law classes. He wasn't so interested in the law classes. But he wants admittance to the law. And in some ways, I think this man is like every Jew, especially every Jew in a kind of assimilated world where Jews are not that acquainted with the tradition. He wants admittance. He comes. But there's a big guy there, this big, powerful, non-Jewish-looking guy, Tarta Beard. And he can't go in. Were you going to say something? No. no. OK. Yeah. All these stories to find the Messiah as a personal mission. It's not a universal mission. So, Hence, existentialist messiness. <laughs> yes. So, you know, the obstacles, whether it's the, you know, the man in the door or, or the study of law, they're all personal mission. They're obstacles that I must overcome, and they, are, they may be different for me than they are for you. And if I'm, if I'm to find the Messiah, I must, you know, I must make that journey, on, not necessarily on my own, but it has to be my journey, not our journey. Which seems very un-Jewish, don't you think? It's not about the community. Yeah? yeah I forget who it is, but there's a saying that, you know, we each come here with our own mission. Our, we all have our own purpose here, very specific purpose that only I can do, that only you can do. I, I forget the exact quote, but it goes way back. A Jewish saying? Oh. Well, there is a famous saying that you should despise no, no human being and no thing because every human being has his hour and everything has its place. Um, there may, I mean, there certainly is some idea that each of us has some unique thing to give. But this idea that the Messiah of all things, the, the person who is supposed to redeem the whole world or the whole Jewish community, that that would depend on me. In some sense, it doesn't make sense, right? Um, it doesn't make sense even in the Talmudic story. Um, it doesn't depend on Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi. It depends on all of us, right? And yet... But if I don't do it, it'll never start. That's right. That's right. So I think in the, in the Talmudic context where clearly communal redemption is, has got to be part of the context, that has to be at least part of what's going on. You have to hear the you addressed to you. When you read that psalm every Shabbat, you hear today, if you, not you as a community, but you, each of you, each of us, me, <laughs> obey his voice. 
then as a community we have a chance. For Buber, more an individualist, I don't know whether he's talking about the community reviving. In part, he must be, because that's part of the hope of the Zionist movement, right? That not just individual Jews find something useful about Judaism, but that the community comes back to life with a sense that it isn't alive in his day. And yet, he doesn't think that's going to happen unless each of us individually hears it. Kafka's darker, right? I mean, for one thing, there isn't any redemption at the end. He sees the light, and then the doorkeeper closes the gate before he dies, right? He doesn't get it. But he did not keep his and, and gave bribes. <laughs> right. So he should have just stepped in. And then he just gets beaten up. At least he tried. I mean, I do think one reads it a bit as a magic story. If this door was meant for you, if you actually had stepped in, it would have been OK. Or you would have come through bloodied but unbowed or something like that. Or maybe all these doorkeepers are in his imagination. That's not out of the question for a Kafka story. This is what, and in fact, that does actually fit, I think, the way many Jews who feel alienated from Judaism feel when they, when they come and they want to come back to it, when they want to learn more about it. It's like, oh, I can't manage it. It's, it's this big, heavy guy in front of the, it's too much to learn. I, I, I can't overcome those obstacles. Um, but I don't know. I don't, I, I, look, it's existentialist in a sense. I use that word loosely. Um, the word existentialism wasn't coined till the middle of the 20th centuries, and every source we're reading is before that. Um, uh, Kafka didn't call himself an existentialist, although he sometimes gets claimed. Buber didn't call himself an existentialist. But the, there's certainly some em huge emphasis on each of us individually and what we each need to do and the choices we need to make. I mean, in some sense, that's very exciting. I, you can say it's... I, I feel this too, that there's something that seems very not Jewish about it, right? It feels Messiah doesn't depend on each of us individually, it depends on the community, we should work on the community, should be politically engaged. But even in the story in the Talmud, it awakes, awakens each reader in a way that Jewish stories don't always do, right? Reminds you of your own responsibility. Yeah? It's, it's also not either or, it's and. I can't quote several verse or chapter, but I believe it's an old story in the first that says if only every Jew would observe two Sabbaths in a row, the machine would come. I think it's later than the right. Mishnah, but there is that tradition, yes. So, so, but, but it needs to be all of us, and having this thought, one person at a time. So it's, it's, it's not either or, it's an and. I think that's right, and I do also think, to go back to the um, what's your name? A uh, point that Howe made before. If each of us, if we don't each do it, then nothing's going to happen, right? If we do each do it, doesn't mean something <laughs> is going to happen, right? But we, yeah, in, look, I mean, I think in, in, in part you could say the doorkeeper, in quotes, in part is our sense that somebody else has to do this, right? It doesn't make any difference. If I start keeping Shabbat, if I study more Judaism, if I get more involved and I raise my family, what difference does that make? If I become a better person, if I improve the, you know, try to overcome my own racist attitudes or whatever, whatever I'm supposed to do to help the world or the Jewish community, 
What difference does that make? I'm just one small little particle here. Other people have got to get going, and then I'll join, right? Well, in a way, that could be part of the doorkeeper that keeps us from coming in. If we don't each say, no, I better do something, and if other people don't come in, that's too bad, and it'll be a shame, and I'll have wasted my effort in a sense, or uh, my efforts will be limited, but I better start doing this regardless. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. Yeah. Look at the strongest trends of Jewish messianism today. You have a, the pre-modern groups, right? You have dress love on the bubbles, which go back to, yeah, candle lighting and putting right. them to in the street. This might be the mitzvah that's going to do it. But if you look at modern, modern messianism, you're basically looking at settler, settler Zionism. Right. Right? Um, that, that, that's the most fervent messianism you have, that connected to the land. Um, but I think what we're looking at here is uh, part of the ethic of powerlessness. Because what's so interesting about Hasidut when it emerges is that the shoemaker has so powerful all of a sudden. The shoemaker is overturning the heavens. Right, with their kavanah, with their intentionality while they're fixing, repairing shoes. Right? So to hear the individual power is an existential sense of my choice. Right? Whereas um, in, a power, in a powerful ethic, it's the collective, it's moving systems, it's, it's political systems. Right? So I wonder like, what does, what, what in the sense, like, what are Buber and Kafka's relationship to political power? Um, and how does that play out in kind of uh, I don't want to claim this as a right? Because I think they're getting something much deeper than that. But the sense of how social change happens from an individual versus a system. Yeah, that's actually a really wonderful question. I'm just seeing how long we have to. Um, Ah, we have a lot of time, so I, so we can take a while on this before we have to turn to. Um, to no, no, no. I think that gets at some of the most interesting issues here. Uh, we do think of messianism standardly and certainly today as a political project, right? Um, well, as you say, not necessarily with Lubavitch, right? Each person should go and lay tefillin or light candles or whatever, and, and they are going to bring redemption that way, which is actually very interesting and more in Buber's spirit than, uh, for instance, because you mentioned some more right-wing forms of Jewish messianism, but there's also left-wing. Tikkun, the magazine, Tikkun Ulam, which is cited all over in the progressive movement. The only way to bring redemption is for Jews to march with other progressives and for women's rights and for the rights of African Americans and for asylum seekers and for immigrants. And I, I'm very sympathetic to that idea. That sounds great. But the politics can, over, can sort of crowd out any sense of the importance of your individual life. And Buber is certainly emphasizing that. Now, here's the thing. Kafka was never particularly political, and is always writing these crabbed, despairing, fascinating, funny, darkly funny stories about individual lives. But Buber was a political activist from the get-go. That was what he was most well known for. I stress that he hadn't written on that at this point. He wasn't known as a philosopher. He had written about Hasidism. That was important. But before he wrote about Hasidism, he was famous as an activist in the Zionist movement with rather different conceptions of Zionism from Herzl, but definitely 
definitely a believer in a Jewish homeland and the importance of Jews to come together in a homeland. He didn't actually move to Palestine until the 1930s, but um, he was certainly an activist. But the Zionist movement in 1909 was not in good shape. You'd had the first Aliyah, I think this is uh, in the middle of the second Aliyah, but there are not a lot of people being active. There wasn't any real hope that Palestine would become, uh, uh, that anybody would, grant the Jews a right to settle in Palestine. British, you know, it's before the Balfour Declaration. Um, basically, Jews are coming in illegally. There aren't that many people who are enthusiastic. Many people are leaving, and there are fights within the movement. So a lot of people, not just Buber, but also, for instance, Chaim Weizmann, are at this point in a kind of a lull, uh, turning to other things. So you could say that Buber at this point being somewhat depressed about Zionism is turning to something else, uh, to a kind of individual revival, a cultural revival that has to be done in a more individual way. You could also say that for Buber, part of Zionism itself, as I suggested, and part of the Bar Kokhba group, which was founded by Hugo Bergman, at, um, who later to become an important philosopher in Israel at the Hebrew U, and to bring Buber in, actually, um, these young students, their idea of Zionism includes the revival of the Jewish people in a cultural sense, which was always important to Buber as part of Zionism. So you could say that this is, in a sense, political, at least communal, in that he's trying to re-excite Jews about their own tradition, but the politics of that project has to be done person by person. You don't get up and get the community as a, as a whole to say, we love Judaism or something. You have to get each individual excited about the text. Two, two millennia earlier. I mean, isn't this a little bit the project of how we understand Jesus also? I mean, I don't know if that's the birth of the messianic idea, but it's, at least it's the big splash of like, right? I mean, is there, is there Jewish messianism that's really uh, prior to the first century that's not, not so much, right? No, not so much. I mean, obviously, the idea, we get it, we get it for in Isaiah, and there's an idea of a return of kingship and so forth, so but no. It's a similar project to some degree. I mean, this notion of moving from law and collective to the, the self and, and commitment in the inner world. I mean, it's, it's more complicated. Well, but that fits very well with the fact that Buber sees the Jesus movement as an inspiration. Um, Buber distinguishes between the Jesus movement and Christianity proper, proper, and I think historians today would agree with that. The Jesus movement in the Jewish community was a kind of... Uh, Peter and Paul. Peter and Paul, yeah. Uh, Paul's the one who says that non-Jews can become Christian, but also the elaborate theology after... Um, the elaborate theology by which... Jesus is one aspect of God, and then there's also a Holy Spirit and the Trinity and so forth. All that isn't developed until at the very earliest, the end of the first century, um, by which time there aren't too many Jewish Christians left. And certainly in the early second century and from then on, uh, Christianity becomes mostly a Gentile movement, a non-Jewish movement. But in its early days, you know, it's not entirely clear what each person thought Jesus was who followed him. Uh, but it does seem to be an indigenous Jewish movement, and, and, and Buber wants to insist on that, as he also wants to insist on the similarity of the Jesus movement, both to the movement of the prophets and then later to Hasidism. 
Uh, what he leaves out really is rabbinism. He's not that interested in the Talmud, which is, an, I, I think, a shame. <laughs> um, although I think it is interesting. Here he's citing a Talmudic story. I thought when I first read it that it must be a Hasidic story, but it's not a Hasidic story. It's a bit from the Talmud. So that itself is an intriguing thing about Buber. Um, although he retells it so it sounds like a Hasidic story. Uh, because actually, uh, the Messiah in the Talmud doesn't say to, Yeshua, to Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi, I'm waiting for you. He says, I'm coming today. And then later, when Elijah explains it, he says, it, today, if you will obey my voice. But it, that you, we usually take today to be collective. All of you, all of Israel. And it's not clear that the Talmud means it differently. Um, Elijah isn't telling Yeshua ben Levi, of all people, you don't, you're not a good enough Jew. But that's how Buber reads it. It's, he's waiting for each of us, including you, Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi. Yeah, 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 yeah. Do you understand that, that the Messiah there is wrapping uh, his own bandages or the bandages of the other? Because if Jesus theme would be a suffering Messiah, right, wrapping his own bandages, whereas the healer, Tikkun Olam model, is that you're over there wrapping the bandages of the sick at the gates, right? It's not, I don't think it's clear which way. I, I think it's probably own bandages, right? I think it is his own, yes. Yeah. I think he himself is supposed to be a leprous beggar. Yeah, exactly. Um, Right, right, right. A person who is himself suffering, sharing the suffering. I mean, look, this would be, it just occurred to me now, but this would be a beautiful way of reading the story. The Messiah is saying to Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi, you can only help me. I'm a leprous beggar. If you were listen to God's voice. You need to help me. You need to save me, the Messiah, before I can be the Messiah which could be in a very interesting interaction. I, that wouldn't be so different from the way Buber, yes, you, can, yes, you need to make me the Messiah. Look, I don't, one of the nice things about the Talmudic context that I wanted to stress is that it's ambivalent, the larger context, it's quite ambivalent between you need to repent and the Messiah is going to come anyway. Um, it, you know, maybe when everything gets completely wonderful or completely terrible, God will bring the Messiah. And one strand says, just sit there and wait. Just be patient. That is itself a good thing, a mitzvah, to be patient for the Messiah. But another strand says, no, 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 you've got to do something. And what's your name? Ralph. As Ralph said, it's not necessarily either or. Maybe you have to do both. But look, one thing I find very powerful about Buber, I have mixed feelings about him myself, I must say, partly as an observant Jew, but... And one thing I find powerful about him is he isn't only concerned with politics. A lot of the secular Jews of the time were socialists or involved in other radical movements with parallel progressive movements today. And I think it's great to have Jews involved with progressive movements. I want to see more of that. But the idea that, you know, that's all that matters. Let's just do progressive politics. That forgets a lot of what goes on inside. And Buber is trying to get these young students to see both, you got to care about your own life and about what matters to you and your own feelings and all that, and you can do that from within your tradition. You don't have to 
ignore the Jewish tradition, just read German literature. You can read Jewish literature and have that come out. And so if we plug that back in now to the sort of ambivalence in the Talmud, yeah, on the one hand, yes, we have to improve the world. We have to do Tikkun Olam. On the other hand, we've got to wait. There's a sort of art of waiting. It's not just, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm not going anywhere. You need to be consciously patient, as it were. And that takes loving your tradition, loving where you are now. Yeah, Ralph. To give you more spiritual perspective, it, it seems to me it, it's, about, it's about the energetic of, of returning. And again, non-denominationally, not that it has to be the observant Jew, but um, like the, the notion that, you know, what is a minion? A minion is when the shards gather together in tune, mm. God is with you. Which in, in, in Christian becomes when you and one other are with me, I'm there. It, 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 it's this notion that it is collective and it is individual, but it, it's it's almost like an energetic. There was a uh, a Hindu uh, fellow by the name of Aryabhanda during World War II, and he literally went into a silent meditation with about you know his his disciples, whoever they were, in the belief that just the positive energy. You know, it, it, it's really that ultimate battle between good and evil, and and you add, if you come and I come and you come, now we're gathering strength right. versus those that would oppose that. So it, it's both collect. That's why I think it's both collective and individual. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think it is both collective and individual, <coughs> but it's important that even the collective is formed out of individuals, right? It's not like it just comes to be in some amorphous way. Or the point that Howard made was that, that it, it could be different. For you, it might be you know, keeping the Sabbath. For me, it might be you know, helping the downtrodden and, and feeding the poor. But, but everybody has to play a part in, in a more positive, uh, energetic, uh, in keeping with the ideal of, 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 of what the Lord is all about. I think your emphasis on energy is very appropriate. That is one good way of capturing what Fuber is interested in throughout these lectures and other lectures he gave on Judaism. He wants you to see that there's an energy, a power to Judaism. It isn't just dead and lifeless, and we can read it as a historical matter. But our ancestors cared about that. Now we've grown up, and we can read more sophisticated literature. No, if you actually return, this is also the guy who retranslated the entire Bible into German with his friend, um, Franz Rosenzweig. Um, and part of the whole point of that translation was to bring out the strangeness of the Bible, the excitement of it, to reinvigorate it, to bring it back to life, as it were. And in fact, some recent translations into English, Everett Fox's and the, uh, Robert Alter's, which are very exciting, really interesting, um, they have some of the same models in, in some ways, quite explicitly, they looked to the Buber Rosenzweig translation for their inspiration. One of the things Buber did was try to use the same German word for uh, Hebrew words that, that serve as a kind of leitmotif through various passages. He actually called it leitwörter, leading words. And one of the features of special, especially the Torah is that it uses, it puns constantly. It plays on words, and he wanted to recapture that in the German um, <coughs> so that it would come to life in his, 
age. Anyway, so the whole point about energy is exactly what he wants these people to be capturing. One of the things to, um, I, think, I think that's worth stressing that also, also I think connects a bit to our day now, and I, should, I, I say this as a philosopher who is very interested in reason and is something of a rationalist, but Buber is a bit tired of Jewish rationalism. Um, the big, if I may say so, crusade of the Jewish community, especially the liberal, more progressive Jewish community in the late 18th and 19th century, the birth of modern Judaism was to show how rational Judaism was. And where it wasn't, change it. So you have, on the one hand, rationalist scholars beginning the historical study of, of Judaism. And on the other hand, you have the beginnings of the reform movement, uh, who, which say, basically, well, a lot of aspects of the Jewish tradition just don't fit the modern day. Um, and that can go anything from, why should we be giving sermons in Yiddish? We should give them in, in German. Uh, to, why should we keep kashrut? split the reform movement. Some people thought you should. Um, basically, we should, basically we, we should be about morality. Morality is a rational process. They learned from the German philosopher Immanuel Kant. Um, and that's what Judaism is in essence. And this is a way in, in, uh, of presenting Judaism to the non-Jewish community who they, whose approval they wanted. Of course, we always want the approval of non-Jews. You think we're so irrational. You think we're superstitious. We think, you think we're caught in the past. No, we're not. Our religion's all about rationality. And Buber found that sterile. All the poetry was lost. And he's something of a poet. He's a good friend, by the way, of him and Hesse. And I, I think their style of writing is quite similar. Um, they're, they're sort of folk tales from the same period that Hesse writes, which have the same character as Buber's stories. I also even think that the, the story, the way he tells it at the end of this lecture, and then I came upon an old man whom I asked what he's waiting for. And there's a sort of beautifully done drama here. And the old man gave me an answer I did not understand at the time, an answer I learned to understand only much later. He said, he waits for you. Doesn't that sound like Kafka? It's got that the same kind of simplicity as Kafka has, which at the same time has a great power to it. He wanted to show the power of simplicity, power in simplicity. But the point overall is rational morals, rational politics, great stuff. I'm a liberal. I believe in rationality and all that. But it can be a bit dull after a while. And the idea that that's all that there is to life, well, first of all, that can be a bit depressing to miss poetry generally. And secondly, for the Jewish tradition, you might as well say at that point, well, you know what, then um, as people used to say in the United States, instead of worrying about the Ten Commandments, let's worry about the Ten Amendments. So you have you know, Jews whose, whose form of worship is belonging to the ACLU. OK, I'm a member of the ACLU. I get the emails. I love the ACLU. But that's not being Jewish. It's not enough to be Jewish. And Buber is looking at people who are the parallel of that in his age and saying, you know, your progressive para, uh, politics and your rational philosophy, that's great. It's not enough to be Jewish. That, that won't give you Judaism. There's a lot more to Judaism than that. There's, and that connects with the weirdness of Buber's story. He waits for you. For you to do what? He doesn't tell you, right? Kafka's story is even more weird, but. It's harder to read an optimistic message into Kafka. But what is the guy supposed to have done? Gone and gotten beaten up, maybe. 
or not gotten beaten up. Oh, you did before this? You mean in the past? Yeah, yeah. When I first saw it, all the camp, this guy was just waiting. You know, as in the other stories, you recognize. That's great. <laughs> that's great. That would be good. Yeah. So that's what he needed to do. This door was for you, and if you'd only recognize me as the Messiah, you would be in. <laughs> Well, that's another thing that had been happening. A lot of people are talking about a messianic process, and in a way that goes with everything that Buba doesn't like about the rationalist liberal world. Not meaning he was illiberal. You know, uh, uh, oh, there's this process, and we can just sit back and let it happen, and we can send our checks to the ACLU or whatever the equivalent was back then. No, you have to stand up there and do something. I don't know what it is, but you got to do something. You got to figure it out yourself. And you are a person. You're not just part of a process. That said, on the other hand, it's not clear that Buber's messianic vision is anything like a redemption of the world. I mean, what the Messiah is waiting for you, and then what happens? You start reading Jewish texts and Hasidut and caring about Judaism the way he does, everything's going to become better? Probably not, right? It's not very clear where to go and, and not well, being a rationalist. I mean, isn't it like in the existentialist camp, I mean, wouldn't it be that the, that the end point is actually not the place of action, it's not practice? It's, it's a little bit of the, uh, the, the, uh, the intellectual and spiritual experience that doesn't just feed directly into action, right? That, uh, that it's, it's about the absurdity of the unknown and it's about living within the, the tension of the choice, right? I mean, I, I, it's been a decade since I've lost the language. <laughs> that's, that's definitely the language. The problem is existentialism is not a, a clearly defined movement. As far as I know, only Sartre, of the people who are called existentialists, actually called himself an existentialist. Heidegger didn't call himself an existentialist. And people look back at, and start roping in Kierkegaard and Dostoevsky and Nietzsche, none of whom knew any such word. Very, very different figures. One's an atheist, two are religious Christians of very different stripes. Buber is a weirdly religious Jew of his own stripe. Um, can one really define what they all believe? Probably not. Um, I do think you're right that he doesn't necessarily have something like a clear program of action in mind. And he is at least as interested in you're coming to experience the Jewish tradition in a different way. Turning around and suddenly waking up and saying, this is me, this speaks to me. That's actually a theme throughout the essays too. You have to see yourself in that community. It's not just something in the past that you're studying, you're looking at. You have to live it. On the other hand, and I won't go into this in any detail, if you do look at the philosophy of I and thou, which I see at least as very Kantian, it divides between a standpoint in which you see everything as it, which seems very much to be a speculative standpoint, which is, say, a standpoint of knowing. I know what that is, I know what that is, I theorize it. And then the I-thou standpoint is a perspective that parallels, at least very closely, what Kant calls the practical perspective, which is the perspective of action, perspective of choice. Um, now, that doesn't mean that 
once you stand in an I-bound relationship, there's one particularly clear thing you ought to do. You need to make your choices out of the recognition that this is a human being equal to me in whom I stand with in dialogue, etc. Just as I think what he wants to say here before he's written I'm Thou is you should make your choices out of a recognition of your Jewishness and a willing to live it, not just to study it, to experience it from within. What you'll then decide to do, who knows? Messiah waits for you, not for me, the lecturer, to tell you what to do. So um, in one sense, it's not about action in the sense that I can give you a program of action because that would take it away from you. In the other sense, it is all about action. It's about what, how you're going to live your life. It means partly how you're going to experience your life, but it's also about what choices you're going to make. What they'll look like? Hard to say. You have to go back into it. The choices after all of the prophets of Jesus' followers and of the early Hasidim are very different, right? The choice of a Chassid experiencing the power of the Jewish tradition might be to lay tefillin, or on the other hand, to go into the woods and communicate with himself, but within a halachic framework. Buber isn't saying you have to do that. In that sense, isn't it not just about the subjectivity of the self? Because going back to the Kantian model it, and the Buber model, it's not an it but a thou because you're not instrumental to me. You're an end in, in yourself. And thus, I can't have uh, a decided upon action prior to this encounter. Right. Because you will help to determine what this will produce. So, where does that choice actually even emerge from from a place of dialogue if, if it's not instrumental? Well, I think, I mean, that's a very, very nice, very important point. But I would say that there's still choice. It's just the agent is a social agent. It's a choice we make together. Um, there's actually a lot of philosophy of, of uh, social agency these days. But you know, like you and I—this th is the example that's often given. You and I decide to go on a trip. If we're doing the trip together, I don't just decide where we're going to go, right? And if we're stuck at the gas station or we have a flat tire or whatever, I don't just decide what's going to happen. We have to work it out together. But a choice has to be made, right? In this case. You know, you're going to make this choice after seeing yourself again within the Jewish tradition. What does that mean? You're going to read some of these texts and so forth, but you're also going to talk to fellow Jews. You're going to be part of the group that Buber is talking to. It really isn't just individuals. There are a lot of individuals in a group who have come together, the Bar Society, to try to figure out what, what being Jewish means to them. <coughs> They're going to make choices. It's not just, oh, we have an experience in the classroom. Wasn't that interesting? Now let's go home and forget about it and do something else. Um, it's just you can't determine in advance what the choices are going to be. All right, let's move to our last text, which uh, I'm a little afraid of because it's very, very obscure. Um, it's the first one in the handout. It's from Walter Benjamin. Benjamin is a Jewish intellectual of wide and odd interests and tastes and writing style of the uh, early to mid 20th century. Great admirer of Kafka, which is why I think that if there are echoes here, there may be echoes even of the, of the uh, Talmudic story, um, but there might also be echoes just of Kafka, and that would make sense. 
Benjamin wrote this, which is really his last piece. It's known as Theses on History, but I think it was originally called The Concept of History. It wasn't written to be published. He sent it to his friend Hannah Arendt, who did publish it. Um, Benjamin, by this point, was a Marxist. He had always been kind of an existentialist, uh, expressionist, roughly in the same sphere as Buber. This is a very interesting period in, in Jewry. I actually think the uh, early 20th century has all these different kinds of Jewish intellectuals who are, who are quite interested in the tradition and are trying to remake it in a way that doesn't fit neatly into any religious movement. They're not Reformed Jews, but they're certainly not Orthodox Jews, but they're not secular either. Or they may not believe strictly in God, but they want to work out whatever their view of the world is through Jewish sources in many cases. I think it's an undertapped resource, actually. Um, Schoenberg also belongs to this period, Marc Chagall in certain ways, and various different religious outlooks, but all working with the tradition and trying to remake it and bring it back to life in a lot of ways. That's true of Benjamin too, but by this point he's quite a committed Marxist, politically, um, he's very, this is 1940, he's, in, he's heard about the Hitler-Stalin pact, He's bitterly disappointed about that. He's bitterly disappointed in his fellow communists. He is about to set out to try to escape uh, Nazi Europe. Um, as you may know, in the last minute, he was supposed to be helped over the border, but he thought he would not be, he wouldn't make it. I think it's from France into Spain. And he committed suicide. Uh, this is, I think, the last thing he wrote before committing suicide. Um, so it's a really dark period for him. In part, he is criticizing historical materialism, as he calls it, um, which basically has nothing much to do with either history or materialism, as he uses here. It's just a stand-in, pretty much, for, for the world of communism, for Marxist approach to the world. But in part, he is trying to reinvigorate historical materialism. He really he wants the left to come back to its senses, and he's contrasting it with historicism. And historicism is the enemy throughout the essay, uh, to the extent that one can figure out what's going on in the essay, which is not easy to do at all. Um, <coughs> let me just read a little bit of it and then talk more about it. So from section 17, it comes in these 18 sections with the 18th divided into two. Section 17, he says, historicism rightly culminates in universal history. Materialistic historiography, that is to say, the communist approach to history, um, differs from it, differs from historicism, as to method more clearly than from any other kind. Universal history has no theoretical armature. Its method is additive. It musters a mass of data to fill the homogeneous, empty time. A lot of the critique here is of the conception of time as homogeneous and empty. The, the time is just one thing after another, and the historian just pulls them together. That's the additive thing, and shows how one thing causes another. By contrast, he wants to say, historical materialism should recognize that every point in history could come back to existence now, and that time is not homogenous. Uh, it isn't just one thing after another, and it isn't, the past isn't dead. Materialistic historiography, on the other hand, is based on a constructive principle. Thinking involves not only the flow of thoughts, but their arrest as well. When thinking suddenly stops in a configuration pregnant with tensions, it gives that configuration a shock by which it crystallizes into a monad. 
kind of subjective whole. A historical materialist approaches a historical subject only when he encounters it as a monad. In this structure, he recognizes the sign of a messianic cessation of happening. There are several references to something messianic. Here, the messianic is seen as the cessation, the end of, the end of history, the end of happening. Or put differently, a revolutionary chance in the fight for the oppressed past. He takes cognizance of it. He takes cognizance of this messianic sign in order to blast a specific era out of the homogenous course of history. Earlier than this, he'd said that Robespierre blasted the Roman Republic out of history and tried to bring, bring it back to life in the French Revolutionary period. Um, he, he, Benjamin, doesn't seem terribly worried about the terror, but okay. Blasting a specific life out of the era or a specific work out of the life work. As a result of this method, the life work is preserved in this work and at the same time canceled as a sort of Hegelian idea. In the life work, the era, and in the era, the entire course of history. Skipping down. Historicism contents itself with establishing a causal connection between various moments in history. But no fact that is a cause is for that very reason historical. It became historical posthumously, as it were, through events that may be separated from it by thousands of years. I puzzled over this for a very long time, and I, I, I finally felt this morning that I understood what he meant. Um, to say that an event is historical is to say that it had an impact on events much later. So um, if the British had not imposed certain taxes on the colonies in the 1760s, we probably would never have had our revolution and sprouted a new country. But the moment when they imposed the taxes just seemed like, oh, well, here's a new tax policy. What, you upset about it? Oh, maybe we can change it. It didn't seem like a big thing. It becomes a big thing in retrospect because of the effects it has. Okay, so uh, seeing things as if they always had the future pregnant in them, that's a mistake. They become significant because of the later events. This also fits with his general view that later events can bring back the past. The past isn't dead. Um, historian who takes this as, its, uh, as his point of departure stops telling the sequence of events like the beads of a rosary. It's not just one damn thing after another anymore. You start seeing each event is significant because of what happens, could happen much, much later. Because of its meaning, not because it just happened to be in the row of events. Instead, he grasps the constellation which his own era has formed with a definite earlier time. He grasps that my time now is influenced as much as anything by something that may have happened long earlier. Thus he establishes a conception of the present as the time of the now. Yet sight, he calls the time which now is happening, um, which is shot through with chips of messianic time. That is to see what's important as the now is to see it as participating in the messianic, as it were. And so now this is how it ends, the essay. On the other side of the page, the soothsayers who found out from time, future tell us, what it had in store, certainly did not experience time as either homogenous or empty. They see the significance of different moments. Anyone who keeps this in mind will perhaps get an idea of how past times were experienced in remembrance, namely in just the same way. That is, when you have a remembrance, you don't just say, oh, something happened a long time ago, I remember it. You re-experience it. We know that the Jews were prohibited from investigating the future. This comes 
up in many places don't uh, call the future. But one was the Talmudic passage we just saw. Don't try to calculate when the Messiah is going to uh, come. The Torah and the prayers instruct them in remembrance, however. That's certainly true. Mem memory and recall of past events comes up constantly in our liturgy and in our ritual practice. This stripped the future of its magic to which all those succumb who turn to the soothsayers for enlightenment. These are the people who are just thinking, well, the future will come and then everything will be fine. That's part of what he's furious about. He's furious at people on the left who think, oh, we'll just get over the fascists. We'll get over the Nazis. This is 1939, early 1940 maybe. Hitler's in power and his, as far as he's concerned, the left is doing nothing about it because they think uh, history will take care of it. Don't just think history will take care of it. This does not imply, however, that for the Jews, the future turned into homogenous, empty time. For every second of time was the straight gate, the narrow gate, through which the Messiah might enter. Hayom im tishmal Every second is the today when the Mashiach might come. So I, I don't know whether Benjamin knew the Talmud, but it, boy, to me, it sounds like that passage. Though interestingly, not with the same emphasis that Kafka had. It's not, it's waiting for you. It's, it's today. We need to say our moment as not one which, oh, well, this is part of history. Let's just wait and see what comes next. We have to say, this is the today in which we have to listen to God's voice, which for him means bring the proletariat revolution. That's not exactly the traditional conception of it. But the Messiah can come right now, and unless you see it that way, the Messiah can't come at all, says Benjamin in his last writing, this dark time. Anyway, I don't know exactly what to make of this, but. Uh, I think it is a, if he's doing nothing else, he's blasting through the Jewish texts and bringing them back into the present, right? I mean, I don't know how much this text, Kafka is often seen as a Jewish writer. I don't think, Benjamin, Jewish studies people write about him, but he's often seen more as part of the left. He's a very precious part of the left, partly because he's not a sort of standard follower of the Soviet Communist Party, but someone who's a bit of a critic, and he's also more humanistic and interested in art and has this weird existentialist take on things. I don't know that anybody's read him in connection with rabbinic sources, and I don't know how much he knew about them, but it seems to me that there is a powerful affinity here between this text and its conception of time and the conception of time that you get in the, uh, in the story about Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi. Different way of making use of these texts. Um, what do you all think? <coughs> do you see affinities between this and the Kafka? If anything, actually, it seems to me that he's more hopeful than Kafka, though he's about to kill himself, and Kafka didn't. <laughs> but uh, there does seem to be some kind of hope if we 
recognize the second, each second of time as. I, 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 yeah. It doesn't, again, there's no recipe here for what to do. I don't know if he had any idea what one could do. He, he clearly thinks that even though historical materialism is kind of the official hero, the communist way of doing history is the official hero because it's supposed to bring about a revolution, <coughs> I don't know that he, I think in some ways, and, and many people do say this about this essay, in, in some ways it's a critique, even an attack on historical materialism as well. There's no materialism here. There's no sense that, oh yes, in, it's inevitable that the proletarians will win, which is really the view that most historical materialists held. Um, and indeed, there's this weirdly anachronistic picture of history in which you could go back and blast the, optimi the good parts of it into the future. Benjamin, throughout this essay, and I think he, generally, he's very much associated with the idea that history is written by the victors. Um, but that, he says, what belongs to the victors are the material spoils. The spiritual success belongs to the defeated. So the point is basically to go back to history and blast to the present the spiritual situation of the vanquished, of the people who suffered from the victors. And I don't know. I suppose he thinks that whatever the heck that means, that it could somehow help in his own dark time. Is this a collective or an individualist messiah? Or both? I guess it's hard to imagine that a, a communist would be an individualist. Um, it does look more like it's somehow Collective, although he keeps talking about an individual person, a historical materialist approaches a historical subject only way he encounters it as a monad. It has a lot of the flavor of the Kafka, I think, uh, the gnomic flavor, this, this mystery as well. And clearly, this is meant for, he didn't, as I said, it wasn't meant for publication. It's his thoughts, which he's communicating to one friend, really, and then she decided to publish it after his death. Um, so in some sense, there's an individualist cast to it. And I think he does think that we each have to recognize the importance, again, of our own actions now and not just rely on the course of history to do our work for us. So... If you go back at least to Marx's early writings, which many people did when the Soviet Union turned into such a disaster, you have a vision in the early writings in which once we get to material equality, that will A, breed solidarity among human beings, which is really one of the things that Marx is most concerned with. We recognize our species being, to put it in his term, which is to say, it's not just that we, it's not just that we, that Marx is, certainly in the early Marx, is not that interested in the poor being well off. 
being a, 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 I mean, he, he is concerned about poverty. He's concerned all his life about poverty. But equality, material equality, is a means to the recognition, is a means to what we would call today solidarity. It means to the recognition of our equal humanity because inequality leads to uh, indignity, you know, abusing and exploiting each other. So we won't be able to exploit each other anymore because we'll be equal, and then we'll have this wonderful sense of our collectivity. That, in turn, certainly in, in the German ideology and the 1844 manuscripts for Marx is supposed to inspire an entirely new form of science and art and all kinds of things. All, all kinds of wonderful new things will arise from our new, truly human way of relating to one another. Of course, this never happened in communist societies, although many devout Marxists think they just didn't realize the Marxist vision properly. But at the bottom for Marx, we have to be materialists. It's really important that we be materialists because the whole idea that we have some non-material nature, some spiritual nature, that's what distracts us from doing revolutionary work. That's the way by which the rulers keep us from uh, progress. Um, they fool us into thinking, oh, there's another life, there's something else. You can be an individualist, you can be a churchgoer, and so then you don't have, that. this is what he means literally by calling religion the opium of the masses. It's, it's any concern with spirituality is a distraction from the class struggle. But once you recognize and are clear-eyed, open-eyed, honest about your own material nature, and we all work for the material messianic age in which we get rid of the class structure and we're all equal, that will lead to all kinds of wonderful things that you could recognize as wonderful in other ways as well, humanistic achievements. Um, and I think Benjamin was much less interested in the whole materialist rubric of Marx um, and much more interested in what we would call the spiritual payoff than Marx himself was. Benjamin doesn't start from a Marxist framework. He's very concerned about the class struggle, partly because he's concerned about the uh, evils of inequality, and partly, I think, by this point, because he thinks that uh, capitalism has brought about fascism. And the only way to defeat the Nazis is to be a communist. A lot of people in the 30s and 40s, Jews especially, but not only Jews, who thought, who turned to the Communist Party because they thought, well, they're the only ones who are really fighting fascism. Of course, then the Hitler-Stalin Pact <coughs> messed that up a lot. But um, the idea was that, not, that Hitler and Mussolini were the natural outgrowth of capitalism. But I don't think Benjamin is in, uh, this is why I think materialism actually does no work in the essay. Uh, I don't think he's really interested in, uh, I don't think he is committed to a thoroughly materialist outlook. Look, uh, since we're coming to the end now, the, let me say something a bit about why I brought these texts together. First of all, it's very simply, it was exciting I, I knew the Kafka for a long time. I, I loved Kafka since I was a teenager, as many, many have. Um, and then when I read the Buber, suddenly seeing what seemed to me a very similar story at the end of this lecture, and then learning that Kafka was either there or his friends were there, that was, that was fascinating. 
And then reading the Benjamin, I also felt there were echoes of the Kafka, though I now think it's more of the Talmud. Um, <coughs> and Benjamin's interest in Kafka would help explain that. But there's a more general way in which I think these texts are a model of how modern Jews can reconceive, reawaken their heritage, whether or not they're orthodox or observant. Um, I am an observant Jew, and so I, I'm happy with a lot of that, but I think the progressive Jewish community, the broader Jewish community, often thinks that the Talmud and Midrash, that's really, that's for the Orthodox. Um, less so these days than in the past. And Orthodox Jewry often says, well, these are our texts, basically, and if you're not going to follow this stuff, you're not going to find it very interesting. Well, as I said, Buber was not himself personally all that interested in the Talmud specifically. He's certainly interested in Jewish literature broadly, including the Bible and um, well, Talmudic stories, the Agatha of the, of the Talmud, and Hasidut. And since we live in an age now in which many Jews who, are, who do not identify as Orthodox are returning to try to find something valuable and powerful in the Jewish tradition, sometimes wanting to marry that to progressive politics, sometimes not necessarily doing that, I think you see these very progressive figures, all three of them, non-Orthodox, to the extent they're involved in politics, involved in quite progressive politics, extremely left-wing politics in Benjamin's case, turning to Jewish sources as a source of inspiration and something to wrestle with in very peculiar ways, but rewriting it, retelling these stories. I think they're, they're a very interesting model for how Jewish content could be just not just something in the past that's part of our history, but something that actually can come back to life in a new framework and with new meanings, um, even today, even as we use it. And I see a fair, a fair number of parallels, both in the political situation and the situation of Jews, uh, of our community today, and let's say over the last 20 years, and the community that Jews in Europe were looking at in the early 20th century. So in some ways, it's a very interesting period to look at. Um, but I think it's important, although the historians of Jewish texts are, are valuable and, and, and they do great work, we shouldn't just treat these things as dead and gone and in the past. Um, and bringing them back to life does sometimes mean retelling them and reframing them, putting them to very different contexts. Fantastic. Thank you so much. <laughs>